Welcome to Ransom Reason. I am Chuck. I am Karen. I am a liberal. And I am a conservative. And as Abraham Lincoln reminds us, we are not enemies. We are friends. We are friends. And today we are going to wrap up the immigration series. And I would like to thank you because you did some amazing, amazing research on this episode and the other ones. So thank you for doing all that, Karen. Thank you. That's really, really nice. This was this was a very. I learned a lot. I learned a lot in this series. Yeah, we we did find out a lot of things that we just accepted as truth when you looked into them were not accurate. Also, we're going to bypass the rants for this one because there's just this has so much information in it that we just want to get straight into it. So I think that's what we're going to do, right? Let's go ahead and do that, Karen. Let's do I it. don't have a rant in me today. <laughs> there's just too much to rant about. Sometimes there's so much that you just can't say anything. Well, it's truly astounding how many misconceptions are brought into immigration discussions. Although we have addressed the myth of immigrants living off American benefits, we want to address many of the other claims that routinely make their way through the mouths of all the talking heads on TV and the memes flooding the internet. Today, we're going to bust five immigration myths. Let's start with myth number one, Karen. That is, it's Mexicans that are flooding the border. But it's just not true. The faces of the southern border are changing. Back in 2000, Mexican nationals made up 98% of total migrants and Central Americans, which are referring to Honduran, Guatemalan, and Salvadoran migrants, only made up 1%. But today, Central Americans actually make up closer to 50%. There's really no one simple description of a migrant. Across the U.S. political spectrum, politicians and activists present Central American migrants as either dreamers or lawbreakers, those fleeing violence or those abusing immigration loopholes, crying toddlers or MS-13 gangsters. These labels force migrants into rigid categories, losing the diversity of their reasons and their wide-ranging demographics and backgrounds. All three countries have different histories and contemporary political realities, along with varying security and development indicators that help explain today's situation. Using the World Bank's measure, Honduras has the highest levels of poverty, with 30% of the population living at U.S. $3.20 a day or less, compared to Guatemala, which is at 25%, and El Salvador, which is at 10%. El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras also consistently rank among the most violent countries in the world. El Salvador actually became the world's most violent country not at war in 2015 because gang-related violence brought its homicide rate to 103 per 100,000. According to a recent survey, 42 of the 50 most violent cities in the world are in Latin America. Gang-related violence makes trying to live a peaceful and productive life impossible, which is something Americans can never fully understand. And while gang activities can empty out neighborhoods, are not the only factors driving migration. Among migrants leaving Guatemala, some are fleeing gangs or societal violence in cities, but many migrant families and unaccompanied children come from the Guatemalan highlands. These are rural, and they have lower homicide rates than other parts of the country. In asylum proceedings in the U.S., women and children from this region frequently cite endemic family and domestic violence and neglect from local police who cannot speak their language 
or don't answer their phone calls. Mm. These areas have been buffeted by climate change, frequent nat natural disasters, and droughts. Now, for Washington, paying more attention to Central America, if not intense attention, at least some attention, some steady attention, would not be a favor or an act of charity. In the case of a region that's showing disturbing signs of political instability that is a stone's throw away from the United States and has already sent three million of its people across the borders of this country, it could only be considered self-interest. It wouldn't be a favor, an act of charity to work with those countries to try to solve the problems that they are facing. It would be an investment. Right. And myth number two. It's mostly men coming over the border. Actually, Central American migrants are female, many more than the Mexican migrants who came before them. While female Mexican migrants averaged around 13% of all the migrants apprehended by the Border Patrol from 95 to 2017, Central American women averaged between 20 and 32%. In recent years, these numbers have increased even more, with women constituting 48% of all Salvadorian immigrants in the last fiscal year, and Honduran women reaching 43% of migrants from their country. Well, here's, a, here's an interesting nugget in that regard, Karen. During the Syrian refugee influx, right-leaning news sources inferred that the refugees were mostly male, leading to this narrative that many could be radical jihadists. Statistically, the evidence did not bear that narrative out. In 2016, of the more than 8,000 Syrian refugees admitted, 78% were women or children. Now that's according to figures released by the State Department. 58% were children, with a roughly even split between girls and boys. So that's a narrative right. that just was not accurate that we were exactly. sold. Exactly. And myth number three, more foreigners mean unbalanced voter blocks. And this is a lot more relevant to the right. Conservatives really need to reevaluate their regard for Mexican and Central American migrants that are entering this country, not just from a compassionate right thing to do perspective, which I think it is, but also a pragmatic one. If conservatives chose to be the driving force behind a path to citizenship and allowing people who were here to walk in the light of legality, we would increase our voting block because in the cultural sense of hard work and accountability, family and tradition and religious adherence, many Hispanic interests actually align with conservative ones. We're actually shooting ourselves in the foot the more we put up a bigoted attitude towards migrant immigrants from the South. And that's one of the reasons that people assume that Hispanics are going to vote for Democrats is because the Republicans have been just outright hostile to them. Right. But where they're right. coming, they're coming from, they're very conservative people by nature. Right. I never really understood that myself, but if the Republicans want to shoot themselves in the foot, that's fine with me. <laughs> right. That's just, it's just really discouraging and it's just a very, very, it's just not a smart thing to do. Right. Now, myth number four, they're taking all of our jobs. Actually, the Manhattan Policy Group, a center-right-leaning think tank, disagrees. They presented an academic body of literature and statistics that shows that immigration spurs economic growth. They claim it does this in two ways. First, it expands America's workforce and encourages more business startups. 
Second, because immigrants' educational backgrounds typically complement rather than displace the skills of the native-born labor market, immigration increases economic efficiency by supplying more labor to low and sometimes high-skill markets. Now, this doesn't mean that they're not economic losers, but they're a very small, small percentage overall. When employers have a glut of low-skilled workers, wages can become depressed. Then you give the wages a little bit of Prozac, and they're fine. <laughs> uh, but, but this is typically felt by those without a high school diploma, so with a very low-end bottom jobs. Now, it can be felt in the higher skill fields when companies abuse the H-1B visa program and companies dismiss their current tech workforce when they can find cheaper immigrant workers or when country clubs, such as that one in Florida owned by our president, ask for mm -hmm. 60 visas for immigrant workers, for servers and cooks in a country club, because they can't find them in the United States. So that's just a little dig there. All but right. anyway, job availability doesn't really change. It can impact the wages a little bit on the very bottom scale, but... If you look at study after study after study, they'll tell you that that is a myth, too, that they're taking our jobs. And really, a lot of the studies kind of argue back and forth as to whether it has an impact on wages. Right. And if you look at any study, the only study that shows that immigration causes has a bad economic effect, it all goes back to that one study from the Center for Immigration uh, Studies. And that thing is all over the place. It is. It is. And so many things are based on that methodology, and it's a flawed methodology. It's, it, it's crazy to me how huge a narrative has become from one flawed study. It's just mind-boggling. It really is. Well, in very big heritage, I don't not a huge fan, but it's a place you can usually trust. Right. Even they have studies that are linked they to that They bought right guy. into that study. I mean, they right. published this study. Right. And I, and I was reading through it and it's very obvious. It sounds polished and it sounds good and there's lots of charts, but it's really obvious when you look deeper into it that the methodology, methodology is based on premises that have no scientific backing. But the charts are cool. <laughs> charts, charts are always cool. cool let's get to myth number five karen yes and this is a doozy this is the big one that just like shocked me i mean this is where you became a detective and really really dug into the i did and i was and just research. i was this one was shocked me horrified. right yeah yeah it's almost as shocking as jumbo <laughs> you why do you have to get <laughs> jumbo in every episode why do you have did, to bring I, Johnson into every episode? I did it last week. I didn't last week, so I thought it was time. Okay. I thought it was time to bring up Johnson. Okay. <laughs> time to bring so out Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> this myth is it's mostly MS-13 coming over the border. Okay. It's truly, truly horrifying and disturbing how this narrative defines those that are trying to enter the southern border. It's the narrative that gives the president the confidence to use words like infestation and animal over and over, which gets repeated in memes and discussion boards and then in conversation, which cements into the minds of society. But here's the truth. 
These statistics are not from pro-immigration sites. They are straight off the 2018 Border Patrol statistics site. In 2018, there were 256,857 border apprehensions. Of these, 4,886 were considered, in their, their words, criminal alien arrests defined as those who've been convicted of one or more crimes, whether in the, in the United States or abroad. Of the 4,886, which is not quite 2% of the total border arrests, 2,812 are re-entries only with no other criminal records. So now we're down to less than 1%. 844 people. <laughs> now we're down into the hundreds here. 844 had convictions of driving under the influence. Now, I don't think we really want to compare that with U.S.-born driving under the influence statistics. And 641 were for illegal drug possession or drug trafficking. But most of those, I think, I don't have that statistic for sure, but most of those, I believe it was close to like 90%, were marijuana, which people want to legalize anyway. Of the 31 possible border area known gangs, there was a total of 509 gang-affiliated arrests. Of that 509, 275 were MS-13. So original number of apprehension was 256,000, and of those 275 were MS-13. Yes. And right. just so people know, MS-13 did originate in Los Angeles. It was not a gang that moved here. Right, right. But, I mean, there are a lot of Hispanic-related gangs have to do with the border yes. area. Oh, yeah. But even of all 31 known gangs, there was only a total of 509 that were apprehended at the border. So, but when you're talking MS-13, which is the narrative that the president keeps discussing— Exactly 001% are MS-13, which is 1 in 1,000. That's a big number. <laughs> I'm this Really think about this, everybody, because especially those that really believe that narrative, it's simply not true at all. It's not true at all. And that is terrifying when you think of the implications of that. Well, we're going to get into we're going to get into next week on a on a thing about fear. But right. fear works. And that's It does. If you keep showing pictures of gang members, you get people afraid and fear works. Right. It's just incredibly discouraging. Okay. In conclusion, I'm going to be a little harsh here. <laughs> and I'm speaking to myself too. As a conservative, I'm speaking to myself. But I'm going to be a little harsh here. Conservatives, make no mistake, we're on the wrong side of history with this issue, and we have been fleeced. First, the two largest for-profit prison companies are behind many of the detainment centers and shelters. These same two companies gave $250,000 each to the Trump inauguration. According to multiple neutral sources, these same two companies have also seen astronomical rises in their stock. This is not a coincidence. Your fear and outrage are lining their pockets. 
Second, who do you think the ICE raids on businesses are yielding? Do you really think gang members and criminals want to spend 12 hours a day processing chickens and working in slaughterhouses and things like that? No, these jobs are supporting families. We busted the myth of immigrants taking benefits in an earlier meme Monday, but think about this. When we deport the member of the family that's bringing in the financial support, then those that are left at home do actually become dependent on the system. So we aren't fixing a problem. We're creating one. Next, I understand that you want law and order. I've heard you say time upon time, it doesn't matter. They break the law, they pay the price. Amnesty is a bad thing because it doesn't punish a lawbreaker. And really, in this instance, the greater good doesn't matter. Okay. All right. I get it. But I implore you to consider this. Do you apply that same standard of perfectly law-abiding behavior to yourself? I know I don't always do that. Do you speed? So should you lose the legal right to drive after receiving and paying a speeding ticket? You don't believe in amnesty, but do you believe it's okay to file bankruptcy? Because that's financial amnesty, something our law and order president has done several times. The greater good doesn't matter? Okay, then that same principle applies if you protest on the private property of an abortion clinic. Also, your same logic would apply to those who had... Also, your same logic would apply to those who hid Anne Frank and her family. I understand that these examples may seem extreme and that blanket amnesty is not necessarily good for Americans or undocumented immigrants, but we need to call for compassionate and reasonable immigration reform, and we have to walk with mercy. God forbid that we ever find ourselves in the same situation as most of these so desperate to become part of our country. Well, damn, Karen, you said there wasn't going to be a rant. <laughs> I just, I think that's a I wee feel bit very of a strongly there, about Karen. this. <laughs> okay. Maybe a tad. Well, let me be the reason here. <laughs> I think what I said was perfectly reasonable. Okay, well, it was a little bit of rant. But anyway, let me ask you this. Why do so many undocumented migrants on our southern border risk danger and deportation to seek a better life here? Well, the answer is pretty Chuck simple. Okay. For the most part, they're fleeing extreme poverty, epidemic levels of criminal violence. We just said 42 of the 50 most violent cities in the world are in Latin America. Extortion is rampant. Corruption is the norm. Government's either complicit or helpless to stop it. And common people just live in fear and misery. Now, many of those who have been detained understood that if caught, they might be turned away. They might go to jail. Many even understood that they might be separated from their children. They came anyway, confident that even life in the shadows will be better than what they left. What that should tell us is that immigration enforcement alone is not going to halt the exodus of people fleeing their homelands. A wall may slow them down and be justifiable for some, but it's not going to solve the problem. Desperate people will find a way to get over, under, or around a wall. It may serve us well to remember that most innovation and progress is born from desperation. Yet amnesty for those in immigration detention centers for everyone is just going to make matters worse. If poverty and fear are all that one needs to demonstrate to get into the U.S., millions are going to be heading north. We have 12 million 
undocumented people in our country. That's a problem. But all of our solutions are aimed at the symptoms, not the cause. A wall is not going to solve gang rule in El Salvador and the rest of Central America. More ICE agents are not going to improve the economies of those countries. All of our solutions are driven by fear, not facts. And those charged with solving the problems are operating in bad faith. They play on our fears. They sell us easy answers to hard problems. The solutions are going to be complex, nuanced, difficult, and it's going to require political courage. And that is not a commodity that is in surplus these days. And that, Karen, is all we have to say about that. Yes. Yeah. Well, I could probably say more, but... Well, I think I whatever you want to throw enough. in, go in. <laughs> you were on a roll there. just arr, 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 arr. I, I, I think we've probably said enough, but we would really like to thank everyone who just takes the time to listen to us. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. We always appreciate you dropping us a positive review. We have a pretty active Facebook group. If you'd like to join, you can find us on Facebook at Rants and Reason Podcast Facebook group. There's a lot of discussion going on there, and we'd like to thank our moderators for keeping everything civil and keeping things under control. Yes, yes. You can always follow us on Twitter at Rance Reason. And if you want to support the show, we do have a Patreon page. You can find us on Patreon as Rance and Reason. We want to thank all of our patrons. They're, you guys are fantastic, and we appreciate all of you so much. We also want you to know we appreciate all the support, such as word-of-mouth recommendations, shares on social media, and any positive reviews. Yes, we do greatly, greatly. And before now, we have another, my favorite part of the show. Segment. That's the word you're looking for, a segment. Segment. (laughs) Thank you for fixing my broken vocabulary again. You're welcome. You're welcome. That's what I'm here for. Would you like to regale me with a tale, Karen? Um, I don't think this is a happy tale, but I think it's an important one. It's long, so prepare yourself. I will sit okay, here, back. Here's our unlikely friends. This is the story of former Border Patrol agent Francisco Cantu and his friend Jose. Cantu recounted his experience with, Jose knew I had spent several years in the Border Patrol, but he rarely questioned me about the work. Likewise, I relinquished certain questions about his arrival and status. Jose was the maintenance man at the same shopping center where I had a job at a coffee shop, and he often took his breaks there. One day, as I changed out a pile of singles for a $20 bill, I could feel his eyes resting on me, and he motioned for me to come near. When you were on the border, Jose asked, did you ever find drugs? Sure, I told him, more than you can imagine. He nodded slowly, his eyes unblinking. Did you ever arrest a narco? Sure, I said, but not like El Chapo. Jose listened intently. We mostly arrested the little people, I explained. Smugglers, scouts, mules, coyotes. I watched as a knowing look spread across his face. His eyes met mine and held them until I turned to look away. But mostly I arrested migrants, I confessed. People looking for a better life. Around 9 or 10 in the morning, every day without fail, Jose brought his breakfast to the coffee bar and sat at the counter to eat. He ate the same thing each morning, a vegetarian breakfast burrito from the taco shop next door, and every morning he offered to share it with me. 
As we ate together one morning, Jose told me about his home and about his mother, who still lived there. His village was small, nestled in the mountains south of the capital. It's peaceful there, he said. So far, the violence hasn't come from for us. Where I'm from, the people are humble and hardworking. There's little money to be had. But in my village, the people still haven't turned to the drugs and the killing. Week after week, month after month, Jose and I slowly built a friendship across the counter. For nearly two years, there wasn't a single day he didn't come, not a single day he didn't sit down and offer to break bread with me. One day I noticed that Jose hadn't come to work. Later that morning, the owner of the shopping center, a woman named Diane, came in for her daily latte. I asked her if she'd heard from Jose. He called me last night, she said. His mother is dying. He's taking two weeks off so he can see her before she passes. She held up a finger. In three years of working for me, this is the very first day he's ever missed. After several more weeks had passed, I asked Diane if there was news from Jose. She beckoned me outside. I don't want to say it in front of the other customers, she began, but I think Jose is having problems getting back into the country. What kind of problems, I said. She looked into the distance. I don't think he has papers, she told me. We never asked. The last I heard, he was at the border, trying to get across. I shook my head. He can't cross now, I said. Not in the summer. I have to talk to him. Getting back across isn't what it used to be. Diane gave me his family's phone number. When I called the house, I introduced myself as a friend of Jose, a friend from work. His wife, Lupe, was silent at first, as if considering how much to tell me. Finally, she spoke. They called to tell me Jose was arrested two days ago by Border Patrol. He has a court hearing later today at 2. I paced with the phone in my hand, old procedures and timelines rising in my mind. I think I know where he'll be, I told her. Lupe, Lupe arrived at the courthouse with the pastor from her church and her three boys, aged 15, 10, and 8. When we entered the courtroom, I immediately recognized the smell, the sharp scent of dozens of unwashed bodies that had for days struggled through the desert, skin sweating and sunbaked. From his bench, the judge loomed over the room, a small white face emerging from black robes and seated beneath the massive seal of the United States of America, a giant eagle with its head turned as if to look away. The judge addressed the forty-some defendants seated before him, all of them wearing black headsets, listening to the words of an interpreter. All of you have been charged with two crimes, the judge began. I understand that each of you intends to plead guilty to the petty offense of illegal entry at a place other than one designated for entry by U.S. immigration. In exchange for your plea, the government has agreed to dismiss the felony offense of reentry after removal. If you understand, please indicate by standing. He paused. All the men stood. You must understand, the judge continued, that in the future, this charge will always be used against you, that if you are arrested attempting, attempting to re-enter the country, you could serve years in prison, not dates or months. As Jose shuffled through a row of chairs, the soft tinkling of his shackles seemed to fill the room. He turned and caught sight of his three sons with their mouths open and their arms draped around their mother. He gasped, looked away, and then looked back again, focusing and unfocusing, his vision and swimming in confirmation. Jose took one last look at his family, his mouth slack and twisted, his eyes wide with longing, and then, with great force, he began to thrash his head downward, to and fro, as if trying to shake a nightmare upon waking. A week later, Lupe and I sat together in the office of an immigration lawyer. She explained that even though Jose had been sentenced to 30 days in prison for the crime of illegal entry, it was still possible to argue a civil case before an immigration court. We're going to do everything we can to protect Jose from deportation, she told Lupe, but we need, 
we really do need to temper our expectations. Even if Jose is able to stay, he'll be unable to go back to his old job. There's no chance of him being granted legal status. The best option available is to make a case for prosecutorial discretion, to present to a judge all the compelling reasons that he should still be granted a stay of removal, buying time with the appeals process in hopes of a better policy and eventual immigration reform down the line. Unfortunately, to a degree, he would be living in the shadows. To help make a compelling case, she went on, I'll need documentation that establishes how long Jose has lived and worked in the States. Lupe raised her eyebrows. Well, he's been here for more than 30 years. That's great, the lawyer said. Any records you can do to prove that and continual employment and residence will strengthen the case. All three of your boys are U.S. citizens? Lupe nodded. That helps, too. We'll need birth certificates. Another thing we'll need are testimonies to Jose's good character, letters from employees, neighbors, and family members, particularly those with legal status. After helping Lupe procure the many necessary documents, I sat outside the law office with my engine running in the parking lot. I opened the envelope that contained Jose's letters and began to flip through them. They referred to Jose as a brother in Christ a family man, a good father, a responsible husband, a reliable person, always working hard, always giving his best, always offering to help with a smile on his face, always laughing. Emotions finally reached a pinnacle after a heartfelt letter penned by Jose's oldest son, Diego, begging Border Patrol to release his father. Then, as I drove home after a shift at the coffee shop, my phone lit up with a text message. Hey, it's Diego. I just wanted to tell you that they're going to deport my dad. A few hours later, an email from the lawyer confirmed it. The request for prosecutorial discretion in a stay of removal had been denied. No reason was given. Jose would be removed to Mexico that very evening. Seasons passed, still finding Lupe and the children alone. Even after draining their savings to pay a coyote for what turned out to be an empty promise and the threat of death. I asked Lupe if Jose was planning to cross again. Yes, she said. But the nights are so cold right now and he needs someone new to take him across. She rubbed her arms. He's going to wait a while, I think, until the time is right, until he finds someone he can trust. I looked away and I shook my head. I wanted to confess to her that I wished I had the courage to smuggle Jose myself, to ferry him safely through the desert, past the censors and watchtowers, past the agents patrolling distant trails and dirt roads, past the highway checkpoints. I wished I could drive with him seated next to me, listening to him tell of his love for his mother, for the streets and archways of his village. I wished we could drive together through the night, that we could make our way through empty streets and abandoned intersections, past the courthouse and the coffee shop, until we finally arrived at the barrio, at the trailer park, at the door of Jose's home, where Lupe would lie, sleeping with their three children, no longer afraid to wake. So there you go. An undocumented immigrant befriending a man most of his community views as the enemy, and a former border control agent fighting for his friend both willing to shed the skin of political divisiveness to reveal the humanity underneath. If they can do it, we can too. Thanks, everybody. Good night.